If you have your Bibles with you today, we'll be reading from Matthew chapter 16, verses 17 through 19. It's Matthew chapter 16, verses 17 through 19. And the Pew Bibles in front of you will be on page 866. And it reads, Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will go you of the kings of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Good morning. Good morning. Is it working? There it goes. All right. As David Mitten has mentioned, today is Scholarship Sunday. Today is a day where us Freed Hardman students that are majoring in Bible can come and prepare and present a sermon to the Mount Juliet congregation here at Mount Juliet. It's such a blessing to be back here at Mount Juliet where the elders care so much about the youth and so much about the college age and have so much, and the church has so much generosity for a scholarship to be given to people who are studying Bible. It's so good to be back where we see old friends and family who greet us with a warm embrace and handshakes and hugs. I can only imagine how Paul felt when he came back to his church after being gone on a long journey and felt the warm embrace of his congregation there at the beginning of the church, there in Acts. Speaking of the beginning of the church, that's just what I want to talk to you this morning. Me and Matt have come to talk to you about the church is no accident. As members of Christ, how do we see the church? Do we know where it came from, where it was established, and why it's here? How do we know the church got here, and why is it important in our lives? This morning we see a promise. What do you think of when you think of a promise? Maybe you think of a good thing. Maybe you think of a bad thing. But we know that a promise is someone's word. It's their word given to us. When I was little, uh, about four, age of four, uh, I'd go riding around with my dad in his truck, and he'd be in the pa- or he'd be in the driver's seat, I'd be in the passenger seat. We'd come up to a stop sign. There'd be lanes of traffic going in front of us, left and right. He'd look to his left, and he'd tell me to look to my right, and he would say, "It's clear on my side. Is it clear on your side?" Without knowing what he meant, I would say, "It's clear." And he'd say, "No, no, no. Wait. There's traffic coming from both angles, from both sides, left and right." After Joe got old a couple years later, after I said clear, not knowing what it meant, uh, he would say, he would come to stop sign, we'd pull up, and he'd look left, and he said, it's clear. And I'd look to my right and say, it's clear. You can take the middle lane. You can take the first lane only. You can take the second lane. That was when Dad had my trust. He had my word. He believed what I said. A promise is much like that. But a promise can be a very beautiful thing. It can be an engagement. It can be saying your wedding vows. It can be something as simple as promising to spend time with someone, promising to eat lunch with someone. We see a promise here in the book of Daniel about the beginning of the church, a church prophesied, a church that is here by no accident. If you would, turn your Bibles to Daniel chapter 2 this morning. We see Daniel. He's a captive of Judah. He's in the hands of King Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon. Daniel is a very wise man. He was, he's captive of uh, King Nebuchadnezzar here in Babylon, the great empire. King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, a dream that he wants interpreted. 
So the king rounds up his magicians and his sorcerers trying to get it interpreted, and he can't. No one can interpret the king's dream. So he says, kill them all, destroy all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel hears of this and he says, wait, wait. What did you say? Are you trying to destroy the wise men of Babylon? And he asked for permission in this dream. So that night he goes home, he's granted permission. He goes home and he asks for prayers of his friends. And he asks for prayers uh, from God. He prays to God asking for him to interpret this dream. He wakes up the next morning, he goes to interpret the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar. And this is what it says in verse 31. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image, this image mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. So we see four kingdoms here, represented with four different types of metals. We see gold, which represents, uh, which represents King Nebuchadnezzar in the Babylonian Empire. We see silver of arms and chest, which represents the Persian Empire. We see legs of bronze, which re- or not legs, but thighs of bronze, which represents the Greece Empire, the Greek Empire. And we see legs of iron, which represent the Roman Empire. We see this as a prophecy. And Daniel interprets the dream saying, each kingdom will fall simultaneously to the next kingdom. All kingdoms will come to pass, and each one will be destroyed by, and be in fear by the, for the, by the next one. But we see a kingdom destroying all those kingdoms, a greater kingdom than any kingdom that could be established by man. Let's read about this kingdom in verse 44. And in the days of those kingdoms, the, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Let's think of a promise here when we read this. There are several things we should notice about a promise from God. A promise from God is usually very powerful. It's usually very important and something we must listen to. We must not take the promises of God very lightly. There's something we can agree on about a promise. is that we must know who it's coming from to understand the credibility, to recognize the credibility of this promise. We see a promise here from God. How much does a promise here from God represent to you? How much credibility do you have stored up in God's promise? So we see in the days of these, those kings, the beginning of 44, we must, we must notice that the time of a prophecy is just as much important as the event of the prophecy itself. If the time's not true, the event cannot be true. Let's learn more about the kingdom that is going to overtake all the kingdoms described in King Nebuchadnezzar's dream here. Verse 34. As you looked, a stone, which is represented as a kingdom, was cut out by no human hand. So here we see that it's of divine origin. It's of God. This kingdom cannot be created by man. It's something that God created. In the end of verse 34, we see it broke them into pieces. It's a kingdom that was established that is greater than any kingdom on earth. It can outlive any kingdom on earth. It can destroy any kingdom on earth. You see, at the end of verse 35, it says it fills the whole earth. It covers more territory than an earthly kingdom. And we see in verse 44, in the end of it, it says, And the kingdom, and it shall stand forever. It's a kingdom that's going to outlive any kingdom that man could have created. It's a kingdom that will live forever. But I think we can agree on, to know more about the kingdom, we must know more about the king. If you would, turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, verses 31. And let's learn more about the king so we can better understand the kingdom. This is during the Roman Empire, which is around 600 years later, which was represented as the uh, Iron Empire, which is just, just as predicted in the dream. This is the birth of Jesus foretold when Gabriel is coming to Mary 
to tell of a prophecy of the king to come, the, that the son that she will conceive. Verse 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. So see, whose kingdom is this? It says of his kingdom, of Jesus' kingdom. Before Jesus is even born, he is prophesied to rule, to be a king over a kingdom. We must notice how important this is. Throughout the Gospels, we see evidence in the Gospels of a spiritual kingdom because we see evidence of a spiritual leader. We do not see a leader that has his mind on physical things, but a kingdom, but a leader that has his mind on spiritual things. So therefore, we can see a spiritual kingdom. If you would now turn to Luke 17, 20 to learn more about this kingdom, about this spiritual kingdom that God has in place for us. This is the coming of the kingdom where the Pharisees are questioning Jesus. Verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. This is out of the ESV version. Some versions say, or it's within you, or within your grasp. So we see a kingdom prophesied here by Jesus saying, A kingdom is within your grasp. It's within this time, the Roman Empire, just as is predicted in Daniel's dream he interpreted. We see, this, this, we see that this dream is within you. It is within your hearts of man. And this was not what the Jews and the Pharisees were coming to expect. Do you think this is what they wanted to hear? A dream or of a, a spiritual kingdom? I, I don't think that was. They didn't want to hear this because they didn't recognize his promise. They didn't recognize the promise that was set forth by God. The rejection of him makes it clear that he was not here to establish an earthly kingdom. The rejection of him, him being sent to the cross makes it clear that he was not here to establish an earthly kingdom. It's very interesting to note that in John chapter 3, that the qualifications into this kingdom are being born of water and being born of spirit. So the spiritual qualifications for a spiritual kingdom. Is it starting to make sense now? It's starting to click? If you would turn with me to John chapter 18, verse 36, to realize more of the importance and the seriousness of this promise. This is Jesus being led up to Pilate. He's been questioned by Pilate. He's about to be nailed to the cross for something that he believes in, for something that people don't understand. In verse 36, he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. So we see the seriousness here. Jesus is about to die for something. He says, I'm about to die for, my, for this kingdom, this kingdom to be established. All right, for this church to be established. So there's, it's very serious here in this verse. Now, if you would turn with me to Matt chapter, or Matthew chapter 16, verse 17 through 19. This is more about the relationship between the church and the kingdom. We see the church is more of a, a worldly name for the kingdom here, emphasized in 17 through 19. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So there's two verbs here, I will build and I will give. He's saying, I will build my church on, on you, Peter, on, on Christ, and I will give you the kings of the kingdom, Peter. 
We see this is very important because this is all part of Jesus' plan coming, to, coming into effect, to come to be established right here in this verse. Now, if you would, I'm going to close with Mark chapter 9, verse 1. This will be my last, last verse. And let's think of the promise here and how serious this is. Mark chapter 9, verse 1. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. We see that this prophecy is coming true. This promise is coming true. These people will not taste death. Like I said, the time is just as important as the event is. The time is here. Now the event has to take place. That's what Matt's going to talk to you about here in just a minute. At the beginning of the church in Acts 1 and Acts 2. The time is here. Jesus is about to be nailed on the cross. His promise is coming to effect. It says, you will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Let's remember that Jesus did not die in vain. Jesus did not die so that he could come back. He did not die and fail to fulfill prophecy and then come back and establish his kingdom at another time. His kingdom is here. His kingdom has been established. Let's realize the importance of why Jesus died on the cross. Why Jesus... Why Jesus had this whole plan and that he had a plan and that it's important in our lives. In order to understand more about the kingdom, we must understand more about the king. Thank you. You are a Jew and it is Friday, the week of the Passover. You head to Jerusalem for the Passover feast, and you hear stories about a man. A man who people have said can cure any illness. A man who people have said can raise people from the dead. A man who people have said can walk on water, can calm storms, can do anything. A man people have said has promised something greater. Promised something greater than the life you're now living. A man who has promised a kingdom. But there's a problem on this Friday. Because you've heard more stories. You've heard stories about a man who has led to a cross. You've heard stories about a man who is dying. So you go and you see. And you see this man hanging on a cross. And you think to yourself, who is this guy? Who is this man? And where is his kingdom now? Where is his kingdom now? And see, that's where we find ourselves in Acts the first chapter. In Acts the first chapter, the disciples didn't know what was going on because because the man they had seen walk with them for years has died. And he's he's come back back to life. In Acts the first chapter, they're confused because he's fixing to leave again. In Acts the first chapter, it's the story of Jesus' ascension. And, And the disciples don't really know what to do because... This whole time they thought Jesus had come to establish his kingdom on earth. To establish his kingdom to fight back the Romans. And take Israel out from under the oppression they were in. So in Acts the first chapter in verse 6 they ask, they ask Jesus. They say, Lord, will you at this time return the kingdom to Israel? Lord, we don't know what's going on. But we thought you were going to do this and now you're fixing to leave us. And Jesus tells them to hold on. He tells them to wait. He tells them the Holy Spirit's coming and power's coming with it. So in Acts 1, that's the scene. That's what's going on. And in Acts 2 is when everything changes. Acts 2 is where we're at now. And Acts 2 is where 
things get so much better for us. Things got so much better for them. Because in Acts 2, the beginning of Acts 2, the Holy Spirit comes down like tongues of fire upon the, upon the apostles, upon the disciples there. And they can speak in these different languages. Languages that they don't know. Languages they've, they've never learned before. But they can talk to everybody in their own native language. It's, it's the Holy Spirit coming down upon them and giving them this power. All right, and then, and then Peter stands up in Acts 2. And he delivers the first gospel sermon. Peter stands up and he, and he delivers a sermon about a man named Jesus. He delivers a sermon about a man these people knew well. He delivers a sermon about a man these people had killed, but they couldn't kill. He tells them about a man named Jesus who could heal them, who could forgive them, and who could save them. So on that day in Acts 2, 3,000 people are baptized. 3,000 people are added to the church. And here we see Jesus' his promise, his, his promise of this kingdom is coming into full at this point in Acts 2. His promise is making sense now because the church has started. And that's why today, on April 18th, 2010, there's a problem now that may be as prevalent as, as it's ever been. There's a problem now that doesn't make sense when you study the scriptures, when you study the beginning of the church. There's a problem with people who do not want to be involved in church. There's a problem with people who don't think church is important. And it doesn't make any sense when you study the fact that Jesus died for the church. It doesn't make any sense for somebody to look Jesus Christ in the eye when he's hanging on the cross and say, thanks, but no no thanks. To look at Jesus and say, I appreciate what you're doing, but I don't need the church to get to heaven. I appreciate what you're going through, but I don't need it. It doesn't make any sense. Turn to Romans, the 15th chapter, chapter if, you, if you will. Romans 15, uh, we're going to see what Paul's talking to uh, the church in Rome about. Because if we're going to be in, involved in this church uh, that Jesus Christ died for, if we're going to be involved in it, there's some things that we've got to do. In Romans 15, uh, we're going to look at verses 5 and 6. Romans 15, 5 and 6. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a problem in the church at Rome. There's a problem with division. You see, there, the Jews were there, and they were exiled. And so the Gentiles took over the church, and they were leading the church, and the Jews came back after the exile, and they're fighting, because Jews and Gentiles don't really like each other, as most of us here know. And so Paul's trying to get them to get together. It's you, you got to get together. you got to be one body. you got to become one. And it's, it's something eerily similar to what Jesus prays for in John 17. If you turn to John 17, there's a prayer offered up by Jesus for this, this oneness, this unity that needs to be found in his church. John 17, starting in verse 20. I do not pray for these alone but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you give to me I've given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that you have sent me and I've loved them as you love me. 
You see, Jesus here prays for the same thing that Paul's begging for in Romans 15. He's praying and they're begging for unity. For unity in the church. For unity in the church that Christ died for. For unity. If you want to turn back to Acts. Acts the third chapter because... When we get in the church, when we get in this one body, in this unified church that Christ died for, we're getting ourselves into something that may be greater than we actually know. We're getting ourselves into a church that is full of power. Full of power. You see, Acts 3, obviously, is right after Acts chapter 2, which is the beginning of the church. Acts 3, Peter and John are walking around, they see a lame man, and he's begging at the front of the temple. And he's been lame since his birth. And he's asking for money, he's, ask, he's asking for different things. And we'll pick up in Acts chapter 3, verse 6, and see, what, and see what happens. Then Peter said, Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Down to verse 11. Now the lame man was, who was healed held on to Peter and John, and all the people ran together to them in the porch, which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us, as though by our own power or godliness we have made this man walk? The God of Abraham, of Isaac and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate, when he was determined to let him go. Verse 16. And his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. So here's what's happening here. Peter and John see a lame man, and they heal him. They don't heal him by themselves with their own power. They heal him by the power of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And, and the people, the rulers of, of, the, of the time, they don't really enjoy this because they had just killed Jesus. They saw him raised back up. They saw him ascend into heaven. And they don't like the fact that Jesus is still working in people's lives on earth. And so, so they arrest these guys. They arrest Peter and John, and they take him on trial before the Sanhedrin. And we pick up in, in chapter 4, uh, verse 7. Starting in chapter 4, verse 7. And when they had set them in their midst, they asked, By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, If we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other. For there is no other name under heaven given among men which we must be saved. You see, there's a problem here. The, the Sanhedrin doesn't enjoy the fact that, that these guys can still work in the name of Jesus. And these guys can do great things in the name of Jesus. Now, we, obviously, we cannot go out and I cannot touch somebody and heal them at this point in time. Uh, but but the, the power is still there in his church. There is great power in the Lord's church because the Lord died for it. And the Holy Spirit is in it. And we can do great things as a church. We can help people as a church. We can do great things as a church that we cannot do individually, that we cannot do on our own, and that we cannot do without the help of the Holy Spirit and the help of God and the help of Jesus. Jesus died for a church to be unified. And Jesus died for a church to use its power to help people. Now, you may be asking yourselves, you know, how do I get into this church? How do I get into this church that is of, 
unity. How do I get into this church of power? Well, the answer is it's pretty simple. You can find it maybe one page back in your Bible in Acts the second chapter. Because the same question that we're asking right now is the same question that was asked 2,000 years ago at the beginning of the church. And the answer we find in Acts 2 is the same answer that we can say right now. It's, it applies the same way. Acts 2, starting at verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Both Lord and Christ. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And Peter said to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Then Peter said to them, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord God will call. The question's the same today as it was to those people back then. And the answer is the exact same. If we want to be in the body of Christ, this one body of Christ, if we want to be in this, this powerful church led by Jesus, led by the Holy Spirit, led by God the Father, we must repent of our sins, we must confess before men that He is Lord, and we must be baptized. And maybe most of us have already done that this morning. But maybe you've fallen away. Maybe you've fallen away from that one church. Maybe you've fallen away from the church that demonstrates its power. Well, this morning is a perfect time to fix that. This morning is a perfect time to be reconciled with God. This morning is a perfect time to have your sins forgiven. If there's anything that you need, if there's anything that the church can help you with this morning, please come as we stand and as we sing.